Welcome to the Tone Duff Sessions, hosted by Bruce Duff, author of The Smell of Death, musician, producer, and artist manager. The conversations are recorded at Tone Duff Studio in Hollywood, California, and are a feature of Rare Bird Radio. All right, Tone Duff session. I believe we're on number five already. That wow. means we're in month three. How did it happen, America? Uh, please say hello to our guest today, Jim Wilson. Hello. Well, that's you coming oh, back. Yeah, yeah. That's very good, Jim. <laughs> uh, Jim has an amazing musical career where he's played with a number of bands you've heard of and also led his own groups uh, that are fantastic and very influential. I almost don't know where to start, but I guess the place to start is Ground Zero, which would be Mother Superior, the yes. band that certainly put your reputation in stone and where uh, uh, notable musicians were uh, actually asking you to back them up as the whole band, like let's just grab this powerhouse band and put them to work. Yes. Uh, <laughs> and so I know a few of those, why don't you just uh, run us through the... Uh... Uh, well, yeah, early on we, uh, we, we played a lot in LA, I mean that was a thing we were um, so into playing that we just... Uh, rehearsed as much as we could, write, wrote as many songs as we could, and did as many gigs as we could. And, you know, because of that, even if there was nobody there, some somehow we just got real tight and we kind of created this chaotic sound which attracted, uh, first off, Henry Rollins, who was uh, an early supporter. Even before he produced the band, he did liner notes for our first record. and and. Uh, Wayne Kramer from the MC5 produced the record for us, and also Bruce is being modest because he uh, helped us a lot too uh, by getting us on the Triple X label, which took us to places that we hadn't been up to that point. We were very independent before that, which was good uh, because of our ties working at record stores. We got in through some distributors and things, but you know, for us to be heard, we definitely needed some help so at the same time we did the first record as Henry Rollins band we released a record on Triple X that Bruce helped us put together and uh, you know I still think of that as our first real record because oh, that was, was like your fourth album it was that? the fourth album yeah but it was the first one that we you know didn't have to pay for uh, a two-hour recording studio to run in and out of and and do it as quick as possible and and you know, just have the best sound up until that point. Yeah, you recorded it at Cherokee. It was pretty, yeah. pretty high quality. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, actually, that uh, uh, also involves, I, I've told this to other people, the single most embarrassing moment of my life in the music business. You know what I'm referring to? I think so, yeah. yeah. Oh, my God. So, <laughs> basically, you know, this is in the CD era. We, we were done making vinyl, so... We, you know, Rollins produced the record. It was professionally mastered, total top-notch production we get the tests in i gotta prove it bruce you prove it it's your record you sign these guys make sure it's cool so what i did this is i and i didn't even think of it at the time i put it in a little cd player that i had in my car through a you know auxiliary thing and i listened to it on the way to a nam show mm. cranked it up drove to nam show fuck sounds great man yeah it's terrific mm. but i was in a car so there was other you know right. car noise and what have you which i didn't take into consideration mm. so total sp spinal tap moment i show up at cherokee you guys are working on the rollins record it's here here's the mother superior record we throw it into the player everyone's sitting around on the like the greatest playback you could ever hear and there's like all these little weird 
pops. I mean, it wasn't that bad. It, it was actually, but you could hear it. It was, it was to like, the point where the songs were playing, and then I heard a pop, and then uh, you know a minute later I heard another one, and I thought, okay, well maybe something's up with the Cherokee system, you know, maybe there's just something in the the speaker playback or whatever. And then we kind of addressed it, and it was like, no, this is on the CD. Oh God, but, I, I mean, felt we never... so stupid. And then of course. You know, that was just phase one. I had to go to my boss and go, hey, guess what? We just made, a, you know, however many thousand Mother Superior records we got to throw away. Uh, it's true. They, they got rid of them and replaced them. Uh, well, you learn as you go is something I, I like to mention. Uh, okay, so talking about Mother Superior, you also, as I, correct me if I'm wrong, you guys also backed up Daniel Lamar. Yes, we did. Yeah, yeah. That came a few years later. At, at, uh, when we did the uh, the final stuff with Rollins, the uh, Black Flag tribute record, uh, Rise Above with all the different singers, and then we did a tour with Keith, Morris, and Henry doing the Black Flag stuff. And wait, you guys played you back you played the Black Flag track? Yes, it was with amazing. both of those guys. With uh, the first, you know, twenty minutes of the set was a bunch of slamming Keith Morris ones, and then Rollins just walked out and did the My War. Whoa! Era stuff. I, now see, I think I remembered that, but I thought it was just like one-off special show. No, we did a world tour. Yeah. Holy shit! What year was that event? Uh, that was 2003. I'm getting bad with the years. I think it was around 2003, and then at the same time, uh, Daniel Lanois saw us play at the Troubadour. And, you know, I had no idea that he would feel what he felt from seeing us just because I, you know, didn't think that it would be his thing. And then not long after that, he asked us to come over to his place and uh, um, just play some music with him. And, yeah, we went on the road with him for, I mean, I've been with him since then. It's been 14 years for me. Right. Well, so do you, do you credit that to... Uh not necessarily the type of music you were playing because you really weren't doing the type of stuff Rollins was doing either mm. or just people recognizing wow this is a unit it was a unit and I you know definitely the original trio was a was there was a sound there and there was a friendship there that came out through that everybody was working for a period everybody was working for the same thing you know what I mean so it was uh, nothing but the group and Daniel was was cool with that you know he he we did South by Southwest with Daniel right when he uh, took us on, and that was still with Jason McEnroth on drums. And you know, Jason McEnroth is a powerful rock drummer, so for for Daniel to just say, "Yeah, this this is what I want," it was interesting. You know, he he took us on, and he loved the harmonies too, which is a another thing that we do well. I mean, I've been me and Daniel have been practicing singing together for so long that people have a hard time. Figuring out who's, who's singing who. what, yeah. Well, that's Pretty an incredible great. thing, and that's just that's something you can't really learn. It's, mm -hmm. it, that's true. You know, that's you true. just got to kind of do it. Mm -hmm. um, so, I know you're still working with him. What exactly are you guys doing? Like, what, well, what's the um, current thing? I'm I'm his road guy. I'm you know we kind of made a vow together a few years ago that this is it. You know, and uh, no matter what kind of record he makes, instrumental or which is. It's coming out in September, a new record called Goodbye to Language, all pedal steel instrumental stuff. But we're going to go on the road, you know, to, and it's not just going to be the ambient pedal steel stuff. We'll do all the vocal stuff and everything. And for the past two years, because of uh, we got to do a world tour with Emmylou Harris, too, we toured pretty much nonstop for uh, 2014 and 15. So, you know, this year has been a, a year of putting some new music together and waiting for the next thing. So, I mean, he's obviously a super in-demand 
uh, producer. And it, correct me if I'm wrong, he's still part of the team with Brian Eno that does whenever U2 decides to do something. Yeah, he's been kind of um, focused more on his own music right now just because uh, he doesn't want to just produce any old thing. He gets asked to produce everything, but if it doesn't excite him, you know, he would rather try to do another Neville Brothers record or something before working with a band that he doesn't really like. So he's been focusing on playing his own music and because of that uh, it's a worldwide thing with Daniel. Uh, we spend a lot of time in Canada and we go to amazing places like Finland and, and things where they just love him and his music. So there's a, a bit of that um, respect all over the world for him. So he's just taking advantage of that now more so than you two, they've been kind of doing their own thing, and Brian hasn't. Brian Eno hasn't been involved with that either. And Daniel and Brian always talk, and hopefully they'll do something in the future. They've been talking about maybe doing some experimental shows here and there. You know, we'll and see. And would you play that. on that? that I hope be, so. That would I mean, be super cool. And Brian Eno thinks I'm Canadian. Like, I mean, I've met him a bunch of times, what? and he he sent Daniel a message. He's like, "You and Jim do harmonies that only Canadians can do." <laughs> I think that's just something that would come out of Eno's mind, not necessarily. Uh, you know something he actually believes. <laughs> Have you met him? Oh yeah. So, so is he? A, I, he seems like he has to be a super interesting guy. Oh, he's. I've you know I've been able to be in the room a few times with just him and Daniel, and it's pretty amazing to just you know. I try not to say much, but he's a super nice guy. So you know he's always. Uh, friendly I last time we took pictures he we have some funny pictures together you know it's weird to hear Brian Eno say good to see you you know what I mean allegedly him and uh, I believe at one time uh, John Mayle have uh, two of the world's uh, most significant pornography collections I've, I've heard about that yes uh, I mentioned that also because uh, my publisher who, do, who puts these on does two kind of books uh, music books and uh, pornography memoirs I mean uh, everybody's got to have a specialty you know I've heard saying? some rumors that there might be some uh, films featuring uh, the man himself but uh, it might just be rumors might just be uh, <laughs> might not go there well speaking of my publisher and uh, you know what also kind of geared my brain about this is they put out a book uh, about the Sparks uh, 23 run of shows in uh, in London called Sparks Tastic, mm -hmm. uh, which is by a gentleman whose name Tosh Berman. Oh, there you go. Yes. Good. I'm, glad, I'm glad you saved me on that one. Have it. you read the book? I have. Yes. Tell me, because I, I haven't. It's one of the things I've decided to talk about that I haven't actually dived into. But oh, it's it's cool. It's cool to, to see what it was like for a fan to to see. You know, and it makes me proud that we did a, a good job. You know, but you know, for the musicians, I think it was probably a little different because there was just no rest for the wicked if i can use a, that term just because you did one album one night and then throw it away and start the next album the next day so uh as much rehearsal as we did it was still like constant refreshing but the best part about it i think was once you did an album you can kind of forget it you know but in a way that was weird too because you worked so hard to get it right and then you had one chance to do it you know because the whole thing was uh, over 200 songs not only what were we doing each sparks album each night but uh there were, you know the albums were 38 minutes so we had to do a couple bonus tunes too so we did some b-sides and pretty much covered everything so wait recorded. a minute because <laughs> i expected you to say so we would do a little like six song greatest hits no. so it was even even more stuff even more obscure oh my God. and like Totally for the hardcore for the fans, you know. So we went through every 
single Sparks song. So when I listen to Sparks now, sometimes I can't even remember playing certain ones. And there's so many different guitar players from doing the Earl Mankey, the first stuff, and then, you know, totally big rock British glam guitar to even bigger Hollywood guitar. And then, oh, there's no guitar on this album, so can should I just like, you know, so when it got to the kind of synthier albums, I was still playing, but just doing little lines and things. So it's always super interesting. And you know, I was in the Sparks fan club when I was a teenager in Delaware, like, you know, uh, I saw Sparks on Saturday Night Live in 1982 and with, for the Angst in My Pants album. And from that point, I was a Sparks fanatic. So one of the reasons they felt comfortable, hopefully, they felt comfortable doing it was Russell called me and said, we can't do this without you because, you know, you know, it was weird for me to, Ron didn't want to go back and listen to the tunes or, you know, go back and go through everything. So it was kind of done by memory and we would rehearse and Ron would say, Jim, at the end of that one, is it a C minor or is it C major? And it's like, oh, it's C major. So they would look to you guys to like fill them in on stuff they'd forgotten. Yeah, or just didn't want to like, you know, have to. So l let me understand this. So you're, you're a member of the Sparks fan club. Did, you, did they actually know you as a fan? No, uh, not until later i mean there's little things that you know i've showed them fan club newsletters late later i see yeah well so how did the whole thing get together with you? mother superior on uh did a, a track with tony viscani he did the uh, orchestral arrangement for four walls uh we met tony viscani through rollins because we did thin lizzie cover are you right ready? i remember that so uh tony came to see us play in new york and you know we kept in touch and I told him uh, I was a Sparks fan, huge Sparks fan. He goes, do you know those guys? I said, never, never met them. And uh, sometime later in LA, received a call from Tony just out of the blue saying, I'm having a birthday party in LA at this Japanese restaurant and I want you guys to come, Mother Spirit to come. And I felt like, uh oh, Sparks is gonna be there, you know, because he kept saying, you gotta meet them. They're the greatest guys. And so sure enough, they were there and I was seated right next to Russell and didn't know him at all. And we all had to stand up and say who we were and how we knew Tony and that kind of where, thing. Where was this at? It was downtown LA at a Japanese restaurant. I, I don't remember. In Japantown? Yeah. All right, okay. And, uh, you know, I was, I had to eat sitting next to Russell Mail. So that for me was, you know, trying not to answer too many questions. I, I think at some point in the dinner, I said something about indiscreet being great. We took pictures. The night was over. Um, months later, uh, me and Marcus, the bass player of Mother Superior, went to uh, Baja Fresh on Ventura Boulevard, and Russell and Tammy Glover, the drummer at the time, were there. And walked by Russell, he was looking at me, and I looked at him, and I said, "Oh yeah, we met at the Tony Visconti thing." He said, "Oh yeah." And I had this—this um, this is a long story. Sorry, I had this artwork of Sparks from the guy who did the Blondie and Dagwood cartoon comic book. Okay. And it was a history of rock, and he did like a, a, a series of rock stars and their stories, and he did a Sparks one, and I had acquired the original art of that, you know, and I told Russell about it, and I said, you know, you guys should have that, you know, it's a one of a kind, it's pretty cool, and, and Russell said, do you want to get rid of it? And I said, well, if it's hanging in Sparks studio, of course, you know. So I sent that to, to Russell, and we kept in touch, and then they released a little Beethoven album. 
and I got a copy of that and I said uh, uh, I love the album so great I'm so nice to hear new music from you guys and he said we just got we've been asked by Morrissey to come to London and do the Komodo My House album in its entirety and then do the new album as well and he said we're gonna we have to get a bass player and everything so I just like in my mind for a day just said I should just throw it out there like hey if you need a bass player I know this stuff so I did and he wrote back and said actually we have Steve McDonald from Red Cross is gonna play bass and he said but if you know if, if you can play guitar solos we're looking for somebody who can do the guitar solos and I said well that's what I do so I had to go to Russell's and I had to uh, play along to the Komodo My House CD and you know they had a guitar player great guitar player Dean Menta you probably know Dean he played with Faith No More Okay, I know and, what you mean. And uh, so we were a, a double guitar team at that time when it first started. But then uh, Dean left after a while, and did did Sparks ever actually have two guitars? There have been periods here and there where they, where they I have. I can't think of that. Even, yeah, it uh, seemed like it was a one guitar, bass, drums, even keyboards. Even when the Komodo My House, when they did a few shows before, there was a guy Adrian Fisher who was the main right. guy. But they had. Uh, Trevor White in the band, and there's there's photos of the two of them together, and there was a six piece for Big Beat, and uh, when we did a bunch of touring um, in the 2000s, it was me and Josh Klinghoffer were the two guitar players. Holy shit! Look yeah. at him! Look at him now! I know, I know. Josh has uh, done some uh, globe trotting. He has he jumped in with yeah, some he's interesting people. Just about people. to again, yeah. You guys are kind of of the same cloth. In a way, you're very adaptable to uh, oh, a number of situations and can, you know, come up looking like you've been there all the time. Mm, thanks. Thank you. I like Josh a lot. He's a very nice guy. He's great. I don't see him enough, but he's great. Um, okay, so now you've got this gig. I guess one of my questions is, how the hell do you prepare to do, uh, you know, a series of shows with that gigantic volume of material? Well, they... Basically, they gave us a budget, which meant we're going to pay you for this time. So we spent months going up to the to Russell's studio five days a week. That was here? Yeah. So the band was an L.A.-based band? Yes. Okay. And uh, it was divided up. Uh, Steve could only do a s half of the show, so Marcus played on half. Oh, I didn't know that. Steve Nister played drums on... Most of the shows, Tammy Glover played on the records that she she came out and played on the records that she played on, and they had the '80s keyboard player John Thomas who played on some of the '80s stuff. Actually, came out and played keyboards with us too. So it was a little bit of switching on and off. So it wasn't. I see. I was under the impression it was a band that did these 23 shows. I'm the only one that did all of them. You're the only guy. Other than the male brothers. And yeah. did you get some kind of reward for that? Or, uh, I well, mean, a gold watch or I something? I think I got paid pretty well. I mean, I definitely, uh, because I was doing all the shows, everybody was obviously paid for the amount of shows that they did. Right. So uh, I felt it was a, you know, I had such a great time. I mean. But run, all right, run me through rehearsing this to get it together. Well, okay, months. I don't remember how many months, but months, maybe four months. And then we had to do a Mother Superior tour, so we disappeared for a while. And the band kept rehearsing without us, and then we came back and had to like catch up. Every day at the Mayo's place, uh, see you tomorrow, you know what I mean? Like, full on. And then it came to a point where we had rehearsed ten of the albums, and then we said, shit, we don't have much time left, you know? So then we really had to like speed it up a little bit and really pay attention and do nothing else. So it was full on sparks. And then... 
when we got to London, that's when we kind of were the band. We were the monkeys because we they rented a house and we all stayed in the house and we lived together for thirty days in 30 Islington. Days. Yeah. So this is the fifth month by this point. Yes. Holy moly! So. And these LA rehearsals, how like on a daily basis? What time you show up? How long you work? Noon, and we were done by four. If the day went great, we were done by three. If it was a hard time, you know. And five days a week. Five days a week. Okay. Absolutely, and you know, lots of getting together with each other as well, like outside of the thing, answering questions for each other. Hey, can we work on some harmonies? You know that kind of stuff, because uh, we had to, you know, do all those songs with all those different members and the whole history but uh then when we got to london it was show day and we would get there around noon i think rehearse the album once or twice dinner break play the album wake up the next day i would go to starbucks every morning with my notes for the next album have a cup of coffee. Would you like listen to a you know a version of it on constantly, something? constantly? Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean each album each day. Each album each day, God. just to remember things and to make sure. Because again, you had one chance to do it, and if you screwed it up, it and you know definitely the first night was the most watched night. After that, everybody kind of calmed down, like audience wise, and started singing along and being into it because there were Sparks fans that bought you know, 21 passes for the whole Holy thing. Holy moly. So, how big was this <laughs> venue? Uh, 1,200? Oh, I didn't think it was that big. Mm. Okay. And, you know, every night was different. You know, some nights were sold out and some nights were, you know, pulling rabbits out of a hat. Their 1984 album, not the most successful one or whatever. But those nights sometimes were the most fun because the pressure was kind of off. Like, indiscreet or uh, propaganda, you know, Joe Elliott's coming, uh, Susie Ronson's coming, uh, you know, that kind of stuff. And then the other ones, the dance albums, everybody was just dancing and, you know, having fun and singing along. So it was a little a little more fun once it got to the 80s. And then the, the newer stuff is really intricate, too. So it's, it wasn't like we could cheat and not pay attention to what was going on. And they had a brand new album as well. So we were trying to learn the new album, which was all new to me. That wasn't something I could rely on. I know every Spark song in my head you know really I, like I before figure, you started this i have to figure out how to play so i have a few albums but i i'm I not i'm not even approaching 10 i gotta be honest <laughs> you know and uh to think of i'm trying to think do i even know a band that i've collected 23 <laughs> records on I, nothing's popping in my frank zappa maybe uh -huh, and uh -huh. if you had said you gotta play the zappa i would go i'm hanging myself tonight. yeah no no me too yeah good lord <laughs> so uh it was the, so much fun. Then my other question is, I think I know the answer, but just to, to be to clarify, no sheet music, no notes on stage, this is a rock band playing. We had like, music stands and if we had some notes, that was okay. Because just for the idea of I got one chance and I have ten seconds to remember if my solo's coming right now or whatever, you know. Everybody had a few sheets on stage, but Russell was a champion for, you know, remembering i mean he forgot words of course you know what i mean but that would make it even funnier well that's another question because you say you ran through the record twice and then you did it so that's you know even if they're 35 minutes that's uh you know it was two tiring. hours of singing for him every day yeah it was tiring and he for us too. kept up with that his vocals are also fairly elaborate uh-huh no and we had i think it was like two shows and then a day off and he was definitely you know those guys are so professional. They're always worried about 
germs and you know shaking people's hands because of that you know it's a demanding job that he has but man he'll blow you away he, he's he's the great great american singer one of the best i mean i've never i've never seen him struggle i mean uh, the nights that i the only thing that i can think of are a couple of nights where one night russell forgot the words and the band was in two different places because you know half of them went to the bridge half of them were trying to go with russell and it was chaotic for 30 seconds and i think i kind of stood up and said we're going to the bridge now and then it's the song came back and the review in the paper the next day said guitarist jim wilson screwed up the song ah! but he got it back he <laughs> brought the band back to oh it. see what happens when you try to like uh, took one for the team man. yeah <laughs> oh well uh well uh let's switch gears here a little bit uh one thing i wasn't that up to speed on i knew that uh you played with Pearl, yes. with Scott Ian, but I wasn't aware that Scott decided to do what I guess you would maybe call a Mother Superior tribute band, mm -hmm. an all-star tribute band, and have you front the band singing all your own songs and playing guitar, and that's called Motor Sister. Yes. It has a record out. Tell me a little bit about that. I mean, yeah, it's, it's, it's a fairly incredible story. I mean, I've known Scott for a long time, and he, he was coming to Mother Superior gigs you know, on the Wayne Kramer tour, he showed up in Denver, and uh, then I remember coming back to LA and we did a show at the Viper Room. We just did some rough mixes of some new stuff, and I remember giving it to Scott a long time ago. And then uh, I had met Pearl, who is now his wife, with him, but I didn't know her. And then she had a, a birthday party, and, and we were just all talking, and she said she would love to make some music with us, so. We wrote some songs together. We we did a bunch of shows together. Her her dad is Meatloaf, so we did a couple Meatloaf tours, opening for Meatloaf. In, oh, so wait a minute. I think you mentioned this to me before. You were actually Meatloaf's band? Um, no, but Meatloaf covered a Mother Superior song. But we were Pearl's band, but we opened for Oh, oh so you were just on tour with him. Yes, we were I just on you, tour with him. You. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, great guy. Had so much fun on those tours. Like, really big budget tours in Europe, you know what I mean? Because he's in England, it's it's incredible, you know. His and does that mostly rely back to the, uh, you know, Bad Out of Hell records? Yeah, the you know, trilogy. You know, of course. Mm -hmm. Yeah, the big hits, that's what they want to hear, you know. And uh, anyway, we, we did a bunch of shows with Pearl, acoustic and rockin', and then Scott would join us whenever he wasn't busy. If, you know, if we were in Dublin and Scott wasn't doing anything, he would come out and he'd play guitar with us too. And in Pearl's band, we did some other superior stuff. Uh, she, she sang a few of the old songs. I think she sang Whore, Whore if I she remember, did, right? And Doghouse too, at that time. And then hanging out with Scott, it would always be like, you know, what's that riff to head hanging low, you know? And it's like wow, you know, or getting in a getting in a car with them, and then Mother Superior would come on the car, you know, they would have it on the, they would be listening to it. So uh, he had a, his fiftieth birthday party, and there was a big party thrown for him at the Coronet Theater. But he said to me, "I want to have my own personal party on my birthday, and I just want to jam your songs with you." And he said, "I know, well, Joey Vera." Uh, I've known he mixed a bunch of stuff for Mother Superior, and he's always been a, a Mother Superior fan. I didn't know he engineered. He, yeah, he. Oh, yeah, he has a studio at home. He's great. Uh, huh. If you go back to like the Monin record, you'll see his name on there. I mean, I know he's a talent. <laughs> no, he's great. I, he's one of my favorites in the studio too. Like 
for my uh, solo record that I did, I would just give tracks to Joey and say, can you do a mix? And I, there's three on the record, I think, that I didn't even touch. I just, Joey's just has such an ear for crunchy rock and roll. But I knew, you know, I knew Joey was a fan and he, he knew all of our tunes. And then uh, Scott mentioned John Tempesta and he loved certain songs. And then Scott picked 12 songs for us to learn. And it was kind of like Sparks because I hadn't played those Mother Superior songs since we kind of disbanded. I mean, for all the shows that we were doing with Sparks and everything, there wasn't a whole lot of Mother Superior uh, activity. We went to Spain a bunch of times and we put out a few records, but you know, once we would come back home, we weren't doing too much. So I hadn't played a lot of the songs on his list for a while. So it came right having back, said though. that, was just to cut in, was Mother Superior one of those bands that had a reasonably fanatical following in Europe and in particular Spain and were kind of like yeah. a best kept secret in the United States? Yeah, and it was hard. As great as it was and as much as we loved going to Spain or whatever, it was it was starting to become demanding to make records to put out on independent labels in Europe to go to Europe for a month and pay a record company. <laughs> I mean, basically that's what was happening. We would, you know, hook up with a label, go over there, they would give us, you know, boxes of CDs to sell, and then they would show up at the end of the tour and say, well, each CD is six bucks, so, you know, and we'd pay these guys and then pay the tour manager and, you know, by the, coming home with And then no swim money, across the ocean back then home. Then swim across the ocean back home and then yeah, right. be expected to make the next record. <laughs> so I think, to, and as, as much as I don't, I'm, I'm not going to criticize the music because I think we did the best that we could with what we had, but it was definitely that circle thing that everybody says, keep doing the same thing and you'll go insane, you know. So to make a record just to survive another six months, it was kind of hard to see what would happen next. And then on top of that, you have Daniel, you know, putting the Black Dub Band together and asked me if I would go on tour for that. So I would be gone with Daniel for six to eight months and then come back with some cash and then no offense to the other guys, but it would be like, hey, we want to make a record. And, you know, I kind of felt like I needed to say some things at that time too, you know, or, you know, I didn't want to, this sounds bad, but I didn't want to pay for other people to say what they wanted to say. Do you know what I mean? Uh, I do know. Yeah. Mean. So it was just going in circles like that. So uh, after a while, it became a, a really good memory for people, I think, you know, like for Scott, who just wanted to hear those songs again. So uh, what was it like then for you to like, uh, you know, I'm fronting a band playing all my material. I mean, was it fun or was it kind of weird? It's a trip. Or? Well, it was great. The first thing that we did was Scott's party, which was actually at his home studio um, we just set up a bunch of marshals and played as loud as we could and we only rehearsed one day before that because it wasn't supposed to be we weren't you weren't no, you weren't making a record there was no plan jam. there was no plan yeah it was just like let's get together and have a jam so uh, we rehearsed the day before and that was the first time I played with John Tempesta and that was just like such a treat you know and everybody was so prepared that I just kind of floated on top of it so by the time that the next night when people were there and it was just 
30 people or something but sure it tur- it was like a rock concert you know it was really great because the response was people felt it in the room and it just felt so good that when we finished we all you know did shots together and said let's do this again sometime and pearl was doing background vocals which was nice because you know that element of it was still there too because all your overdubs were suddenly live. All the overdubs were live, exactly, exactly. Yeah, I get it. So, um, within a week, we heard from Metal Blade uh, that I, the story I heard was that Niels Lozauer called Mike at Metal Blade and said, I went to this party the other night and it was Mother Superior, but it was new guys and it was Jim Wilson and blah, blah, blah. And, and Mike said, well, how come I didn't know? How, do they want to make a record? And and so then Scott called me and said, do you want to make a record of this? And it just, you know, it's it's been great. It's introduced so many more people to the, the music and the, the songs. And because of, you know, Scott and Joey, I think that that gave us a, the, a little more edge, which introduced us to that metal audience too. Because, you know, we're not metal, but it's not that far removed from what metal people listen to you know it's kind of like what me and you were talking about before this with the sex pistols uh or even uh even like a big metal record like say judas priest point of entry is it's a rock and roll record you know what i mean so there's that parallel between the two that it's just heavy rock and we all love thin lizzy and led zeppelin and ufo and this where it all comes from and you know for me i think a little bit of a soul in there too if that comes from paul rogers or if it comes from stevie wonder then it's kind of the same thing Mm -hmm. Uh, but it's been great we've uh only we haven't done as many shows as i want to but we will we're going to make a second record of all well you mentioned that so now this is going to be what's that material going to be well ever since the uh the first record was has been talked about we've known that we're probably going to be able to do a second record and we should do new songs for that. So because the first record was all old songs, we recorded the record fast two days or whatever, but obviously you got to wait six months for the label to put it out. So I just started stockpiling riffs, thinking of guitar riffs, thinking of grooves and uh, put a bunch of stuff together. And I've given the band 16 new songs for the end of this year. We're going to, I mean, they're completed. They're pretty much completed, but I, some of the words I left So open. you're still the sole writer? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. So it's still your mastermind and then... But, so this, I mean, is it fair to say just because of the, you know, Joey and... Uh, I mean, John, excuse me. And Joey. Yeah. The rhythm section and, uh, you know, the dual guitar thing. This is sort of a heavier spin on Mother Superior? I think so. I think it is because... Uh, it's definitely more of a, a machine kind of thing, you know, like where it's just so powerful. And obviously, the original band went through so many songs to find the great songs, you know. And this band has just focused on 12 great songs. And we do a couple extra ones live, too. So, you know, it'll be interesting to, to put the new stuff together because John Tempesto wanted to play the great drum parts that are on the originals you know what i mean so there, this time around it's going to be more original for everybody and i've told everybody well so now when when you when you do a demo of it what are they listening to they're listening to me playing 
everything. It's guitar, vocal. Oh, you play the drums too. Well, I just have a program, and I just here's what it's I do. It's a drum machine. I've I still use my antiquated uh, four track quarter inch tape TAC tape recorder because I've been using it so long. I can just do things so fast. So I take a, a you know I have amazing drum samples, and I just take a click track, and I do three tracks of drums. I do one where I have the song mapped out, and I just do bass drum and a snare and then the next one I'll do some hi-hat and cymbals and then the next track I'll do so then I bounce those down to the fourth track and that'll be my like my good drum track and then that's how I start that and then uh, and when I bounce it down to the fourth track I play bass along with the fourth track too so my rhythm section is on track four and then I go back and do probably the guitar track and save the vocal for last so they're here in the whole range they're here in the whole range I've learned from Michael Jackson the best thing about songwriting is to uh, if you got something don't worry about the words write one verse because if you spend too much time writing three verses and then the song doesn't happen then what's the point so just write one verse and if the song's good I've never heard that before that's kind of an interesting notion <laughs> to that so I don't have to worry about it because if I and I told them when when I sent everybody the 16 songs I said you know there's some funny lines because I'm just singing stuff off the top of my head too you know what I mean but sometimes the things come out of that too. Yeah. Well, not only is Jim a band guy, band leader, sideman, he did a solo album uh, in <laughs> 2011. It's a pretty damn good record. Thank I you. revisited it the other day, and uh, there's a song on there that has a complete orchestra on it. And how that's uh, crying out pay later. Uh-huh. How was that done? Was is that a real orchestra? It's, is it samples? That's or Sparks. That's Ron Mayo. It's samples. Yeah. It is. I Holy took moly. A, when I was when we were doing the Spark stuff, I I decided that I was going to make a solo album, and I talked to them about it, and I asked if they would help me do a song because I had a song that was written on keyboards, and they had just a great keyboard setup at their place at Russell's studio. So I asked Russell, "Can I come over and just record a keyboard track?" And that's you playing the keyboards. It was, and then Ron was there when I did the track, and Ron said, "Can I?" do an arrangement of this and I said sure and he goes it might get fucked up and I said do whatever you want to do so I don't think there's any other than the guitar solo it's all Ron he took out my keyboard and did it all himself so I came back and sat down I thought you had like you know oh no it sounds a great. string quartet come in and like, yeah and it's funny he uh, worked hard on it I mean they put some time into my track and it was I'm blown away that I have a, a sparks track like that Oh, there's a there's a track on the upcoming uh, Jester's record where I had Paul Rossler do a si- similar thing, mm-hmm. and I did same thing, orchestrate it, do whatever you want. And I think keyboard players just think, you know, yeah. I think because of the way they learn, learning classical pieces, that things are kind of voiced out. Mm-hmm. They just hear that differently than they we do. They do. Not to go back to the Sparks thing, but that reminds me of the Twenty One Nights because we would we would be rehearsing songs, and Ron would say. Like probably more like the '80s stuff, where it was mostly mostly synthesizer stuff. Ron would say, "Oh, the horn part." And to me, I've always just thought of it as a, a synthesizer part. But to him, he was thinking of that part as a horn part. You know, even I mean? though it was a even though it was a synthesizer. I see. Yeah. That makes so, sense. Mm-hmm. So he does think like that. So tell me, I know we mentioned earlier uh, that you're working on some new solo stuff. Tell us a little bit about that. Uh, it's, it's so exciting for me. Um, uh, I've been recording tracks with a great drummer named Phil Jones, who uh, plays in Waddy Wachtel's band. He plays in Peggy Young, Neil Young's wife's band. Uh, and he is known for 
playing on Tom Petty's Full Moon Fever album. That's him on Free Fallen and uh, all those other great ones uh, that I'm spacing out on right now. <laughs> Love is a long road and uh, what's the other one? No, 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 no. Running down the Running down the we're, we're, we're day drinking here. Yes, 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 yes. So these things happen. <clears throat> yeah. Um, so me and Phil have just been cutting stuff together uh, as a duo, but then we've been adding stuff too. I've done the guitars and the bass and Phil does the drums and percussion and the, and the recording and everything. But uh, so far we've got uh, two tracks with uh, Spooner Oldham on keyboards who plays on When a Man Loves a Woman and Mustang Sally. You might have heard of those songs. And uh, also we have uh, a couple tracks with Fred Mandel on keyboards who I know through Pearl's band. But Fred is incredible too. He plays on The Wall. He played with Elton John and Alice Cooper uh, and Queen. He did all the synthesizers for Queen in the 80s. Wait, all those records said no synthesizers. Just kidding. <laughs> <laughs> but he uh, he played with Alice in like the uh, uh, We're All Clones era. Oh, is, he, is that he's his? The, he's a guitar player with Alice. Oh, And he switched awesome. to keyboards later. But we're working on some great stuff. Uh, we've got some other great people on them too. Uh, I'm going to cut a bunch of vocals this week, this weekend with Phil up in the mountains and, uh, you know, just uh, making music while while we're home and have the time. You know, uh, it's interesting that you know a lot of guys. You're not quite as ancient as me, but you're 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 sneaking up. There. You're sneaking <laughs> up on me. Uh, <laughs> you know, and a lot of guys from my generation just kind of got off the bus and like, okay, I found another thing to do. You stuck with it and have actually, you know, maintained a, a life as a pro musician, both as a sound a side guy and a band leader. Are you doing everything you want to do? Is it kind of, I mean, are you in control enough and playing what you want to do? And are you happy with it? I feel, I'm, you know, I feel incredibly lucky and I feel like I'm doing things that I never thought I would do or, you know, just the people that I'm playing with and, and, you know, I'm not saying it's easy. Every day is a challenge and you never know what's going to happen. I don't know how, you know, I've been able to keep this up so long it's not like i i'm calling daniel or i'm calling phil jones and going please give me a gig or whatever like it, as weird as it sounds sometimes i just like let things happen and and they just comes together you know and it, it's not what i expect but something happens that you know takes it to the next place so i at this point i just feel like it must be what I'm here to do because it wouldn't happen that way any other way you know what I mean I'm not trying to cheat it or whatever so at this point I don't have any other choice I just have to keep making it happen Jim it's always a pleasure to see you and catch up because YouTubers. there's already so many great stories uh, it's so nice to know somebody as long as I've known you and to just have nothing but great thoughts about you you know that's incredible. Another quick little story while we're, we're reminiscing uh, is that when we first met a little ways into it, we were just shooting the shit about something, and I told you, oh man, you know what, I bought this really funny record. It's like nothing but Paul Stanley talking, you know, to announce his, his songs. It just Paul Stanley raps. It's called Having Fun with, <laughs> with Stanley on stage. And there are a couple of you guys, and you just looked at me like... I mean, what, what do you mean? You, and I couldn't figure out, why are they just staring at me? They go, we put that record out. 
Well, awesome. Maybe we'll cl- I'll, I'll put in some samples of that. Uh, it's a great stuff. record. I'm proud of that record. I wish I had more of them, but yeah, I've seen that record on eBay. I've seen it in uh, on the wall in a store in Boston, and we only did 300 of them and just kind of like white label. It was done with love. It wasn't making fun of Paul Stanley. It was but it's hilarious. Celebrating. Well, them. the ads, when we used to play, we used to use that as our opening just straight through, you know, just used to, while we're setting up our gear and shit. Uh, and Bill Bartell told me that he went to a KISS auction, and one of the things they were auctioning off were, in his own handwriting, Gene Simmons ri- had written out those things. So Paul said them, but Gene wrote them. According oh, wow. to So it, like he was like literally feeding the words into oh, Paul's amazing. mouth. I don't know if that's true, but uh-huh. I kind of think it is. Uh-huh. <laughs> All right, Tone Deaf Sessions, over and out. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Tone Deaf Sessions. Join us next time when our guests will be musicians Josh Hayden and Kenny Lyons, talking about their work on the new Spain album and much more. <laughs> <laughs>